Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. On this Veterans Day, we remember Vietnam with an author whose book takes us back to that conflict. The author is historian James Wright, President Emeritus of Dartmouth. His book is Enduring Vietnam, An American Generation and Its War. Jim, thanks for being with us. Don, I'm delighted to be here with you. Great job on the book, but I have to tell you, it was very, very painful raking over those old coals once again. What brought you to it? Well, I, for a number of years, I, I, I started visiting military hospitals in 2004, the, the kids from Iraq and Afghanistan, mm-hmm. Walter Reed and Bethesda. And I got involved setting up a counseling program for them to continue their education. And I was invited to speak at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in 2009 on Veterans mm-hmm. Day. And I talked there, and, and, and really what I realized in retrospect that I, I found my theme there, something that was very important, is that we have to remember those who sacrifice in wars and that they're far more than numbers that are part of a compilation. They're far more than names uh, that are engraved in stone. Uh, but these are lives that are lost, full and rich lives waiting to be lived uh, that, that were lost. And, and if we don't remember that, if we if if we get diverted into thinking that wars are fought by drones or little mimetic boots on the ground dancing around in the sand, if we forget that we're talking about our sons and daughters, uh, that we're talking about flesh and blood, uh, it's too easy to go to war. And so I, I, I wrote a book, uh, Those Who Have Borne the Battle, which is a history of veterans mm-hmm. in America's wars. And, and when I finished that, I knew that there was something yet that I needed to, to, to handle, and that was the Vietnam War. I was out of the Marines before the Vietnam War uh, started. I never served in Vietnam. I never served in combat. But I, I, I realized that we had really forgotten that Vietnam War generation. We had dismissed them. And so I decided I wanted to tell the story of the baby boomer generation, of those who served. We think of the generation as a time of... of of peace and love and protests, mm-hmm. and uh, really they did change American culture in so prof- some profound and good ways. But we also need to realize that 40% of the men of that generation served in the military, uh, and a lot of them have their names on the Vietnam Memorial. So I wanted to tell the story of who this generation was. You know, given what you've just said and, and your previous, but this book and your previous book, I'll digress for a moment because I have to ask this question. What did you make of the president's performance over the weekend in France? Well, I, I just picked up on a, a bit of it uh, this morning on, on, on the news because I, I was traveling yesterday. I missed, uh, I missed part of it. Uh, I think it's unfortunate uh, that uh, he was not out at the cemetery, and uh, I, I don't know all of the reasons why he didn't go there, and I, I don't want to try to assess them. But uh, these things are, are, are more than symbolic acts. I think they reaffirm that we're going to remember uh, these kids. And, and I, somebody my age can refer to them as kids even though they would have been older than I am because when they died, they were kids. Yeah. And uh, we have to remember them. Frozen in time, in a, Frozen in a sense. Frozen in time, yes, they were. Uh, on the very cover of your book, before I even started to, uh, to read it, uh, I saw this uh, blurb from Ken Burns of uh, PBS and Vietnam fame. There's something about the Vietnam War that speaks directly to the divisions we experience today. How so? Well, you'd, you'd have to ask Ken more directly that, but, but I can say based on my conversations with him and my own sense of it is that, 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 that uh, we still are having trouble defining 
uh, how we go to war, what it means to go to war, and and, and this is this mm-hmm. is a deeper problem, Don. And and in many ways, some would say it's a good problem. But you know, I'm my my father was in World War II. I remember when he came home from the war. I was born in 1939. I remember that generation coming back to my hometown of Galena, Illinois, upriver from here, mm-hmm. and uh, the energy and the enthusiasm that they had. But they fought a war that, uh, like, we'll never uh, fight again. Uh, we hope. We hope. Yeah. Yes, indeed, indeed. But I don't think we will. I don't think we'll see you know, tens of thousands of men landing on a beach like Normandy or Iwo Jima again. Uh, I don't think we'll see that scale of operations. But what's happened, beginning with Korea and down to today, is that wars are really being fought with the military being used to advance a political goal, often a very valid political goal, to keep North Korea from from permanently invading and occupying uh, South Korea. And uh, but but it, there there are no clear military objectives. Uh, in Vietnam, for example, 80% of the uh, encounters with the enemy were initiated by the enemy. Uh, we didn't have mass landings uh, to go in and try to fight them. We didn't, uh, uh, in, in, in most cases, occupy ground and hold it. There were no flag raising like there were on Iwo Jima or places like that. There were not these iconic moments. And uh, these kids uh, were asked to go in and fight. There was small unit operations. And they fought day after day, often on the same uh, same ground. And and it it was an unpopular war. And I, I'm I'm not trying to make it a popular war in my book, uh, but I do think that those kids who stand up and serve, who accept a draft notice and served in an unpopular war, are really demonstrated a fundamental form of of, of service and patriotism. And I think we need to do a better job. Of recognizing that, you, you begin by talking about a battle at Hamburger Hill in 1969, and I saw that as a metaphor for the entire war because we take it and then give it up, and take it and give it up, and this went on and on and on. It was just like the the it, war itself. It, it, it did, and you know, Colin Powell in in his memoirs uh, wrote about going to to Vietnam as a young army officer in 1963. It was before we sent combat troops in. We we're still there. As uh, as uh, uh, to support the South Vietnamese, and he was up in the Asha Valley near Hamburger Hill, and he was attached there to a South Vietnamese Army unit. and uh, And uh, after a couple of days of orientation, uh, he asked the South Vietnamese commander, uh, "So why is this base camp here?" And the South Vietnamese uh, commander said, this base camp is here to protect that airstrip down below. And there was a grass airstrip down below. And and, uh, uh, Colin Powell recognized the importance of protecting an airstrip. And he said, well, that's that's good. But why is the airstrip there? And the South Vietnamese commander said, "Uh, the airstrip is there to supply this base. (laughs) And Colin Powell uh, said he's not sure that he ever heard a, a better description of why we engaged in some of the combat operations we were in in Vietnam. It was just back and forth and back and forth. But, you know, there were, there, there were a lot of young kids uh, who were, were killed there, and I just think we have to, we have to remember them. The warfare has changed. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm of the over-75 generation. Men of my age, 52% of us are veterans. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
the Vietnam generation, about 37% are veterans. And, and of course, the current generation of their 20s and early 30s, it's about 2% are veterans. It's clear which way this demographic is moving. And, and I'm concerned that as fewer and fewer of us have that experience, and uh, I, I have to say it's a relief to not have to see so many of our young kids go to war. I'm not at all suggesting we should be sending more people to war. But as fewer of us have that experience, as the nature of warfare changes dramatically, uh, I think fewer of us understand what it is that we're asking mm-hmm. them to do. And I think in a democracy, if we're going to send kids into the combat zone, we all have an obligation to understand just exactly what it is that we're asking them to do. Well, your book does a great job of doing just that. You, you mentioned uh, re- recalling World War II. And in your book, you point out that World War II uh, and that had an influence on the young men and women who, uh, who went to Vietnam and who signed up to go to Vietnam. You describe them as very, very patriotic. They were. I mean, you know, these these are the kids that grew up with duck and cover drills in the schools. Yeah. I mean, I remember them. I mean, in a small Mississippi River town, mm-hmm. as if uh, the Russians were going to bomb us. But we had duck and cover, get underneath the desk, and and people of my generation had that. And and, and you know, we're of the generation where where John Kennedy could say at his inauguration. Uh, Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And and, and that may seem like something that, 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 that's so out of date in 2018, quite frankly, but it did not seem out of date to, to that generation that grew up in the 1950s. There was a true sense of obligation. And as many of – I interviewed about 160 people for my book. Most of them were veterans. I looked – I sought out combat veterans. I wanted to know what that experience was. But I also talked to families who got the knock on the door. But uh, so many of the veterans had said, when I would always ask them, why did you go to Vietnam? And, and basically, among the, the reasons they would describe uh, was, you know, my dad was a World War II veteran. I couldn't imagine telling him, no, I'm not going to fight. Uh, that, that's uh, what I meant, yeah. J- John Kennedy said the torch is passed to a new generation, and he meant his generation, the World War II generation, these young 40-something uh, veterans. But you know what? They've passed that torch around all, along to their own kids pretty quickly. Well, obviously, you mentioned uh, President Kennedy in your book. I have a quote here. President Kennedy was held hostage by the Cold War. Uh, why don't you explain what you meant by that? I think it was it was really hard for any American president in the 50s and 60s to, to reject uh, uh, some of the, the, the expectations of the Cold War. And I, I would not minimize uh, Stalin or, or the Soviets or the Chinese as people who were contesting us uh, internationally. And uh, the, I, I can't, you know, Kennedy said, you know, I, I wouldn't mind getting out of Vietnam, but we got to wait till after the next election. Mm-hmm. He knew full well that, uh, that the American people really expected. And he helped to create this. If, if you look at his campaign in 1960, he talked about the missile gap, about uh, the need to, to make America strong again and, and exercise leadership in, in, the, in the world. Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon were also hostage of that same thing. But that's not an excuse for them. They helped to create this as well. Yeah. And, and, and my, my concern, I, I have in my book, I'm, I'm, I'm not too kind to those who sent us to war because I, I think that in each case they knew full well what a difficult thing we were getting into 
but they did they, they didn't have the courage to step back and talk to the American people directly. This this is going to be difficult. I don't know how it's going to end. We're going to take a lot of casualties. Instead, it was, it was something that seemed essential. And don't worry, we can take care of it uh, very quickly. Vietnam was was not about Vietnam, even though it was described yeah. that way. It was really part of a broader global power structure. We thought we couldn't flinch and, and, and because we thought the threat was coming out of Hanoi, which meant that Beijing was right behind it and the Soviets right behind them, and we couldn't flinch. It was the domino theory uh, in the day that yeah, you, if yeah. we lose Vietnam, uh, that part of Asia would and Southeast Asia would fall. Yes. I've got to take a break. We're talking with Jim Wright, and uh, he is the author of uh, Enduring Vietnam. We'll come back to continue our conversation in just a moment. If you're a Vietnam vet and would like to get into it, uh, give us a call, 382-8255, 382-TALK. Send us an email at talk at stlpublicradio.org or send us a tweet at STL on air. This is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. conversation with Jim Wright, the author of Enduring Vietnam. By the way, Jim is going to be appearing at the Missouri History Museum tonight at 7 o'clock. We'll be talking about this book, and I'm sure he'd love to have you stop by because there's lots to talk about, and we will not be able to get to all of it in our program today. But I do want to go back to the president's because, uh, again, another quote about LBJ, whom you mentioned, his skill in domestic politics had no counterpart in his at times fumbling approach to international politics. He did a great job on civil rights in the 60s, but really blew it with the war, didn't he? He did. He, he thought that, uh, don't worry, I can get these guys to negotiate. And uh, he just didn't realize what he was getting into. And, and his own ego got very much caught up in it. I think that was true of all of the presidents. I think it was true of, of, of Kennedy and Nixon. Uh, their own ego got caught up in it. You know, I'm not going to be the American president who, who loses a war. And, and, and I think that... that the Vietnam one was was particularly uh, difficult for the kids who were there when that when when they first went over. It was thought of as sort of a uh, the United States assuming its role in the Cold War, and by God, we'd stand down these commies who are trying to take over South Vietnam. But as we all know, uh, those of us who lived through the '60s, those of us who have studied it or looked at it, uh, it became very unpopular very quickly. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, the irony of that is that the kids who were fighting there became very unpopular. It was when I did my previous book, Those Who Have Borne the Battle, I talked a little bit about this, and I was struck by the contrast with uh, those who served in Iraq and Afghanistan with those who served in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And it, by 2008, let's say, Iraq and Afghanistan, really maybe even by 2006, Iraq and Afghanistan were as unpopular as wars as Vietnam mm-hmm. was, but we never faulted uh, the kids who served there, and somehow we ended up faulting uh, the kids uh, who served in Vietnam as being perpetrators of of an immoral war. 
after after Lieutenant Kelly's, uh, uh, after Milai came out in late 1969, uh, the the label of baby killers was commonly used, and and I don't uh, uh, try to sugarcoat the fact that some of the servicemen that we sent over there did some terrible, terrible things, and I think they should have been held accountable for it. My concern about Cali is that we all found excuses for it, including the excuse, well, that's what happens when you serve. Mm -hmm. He was just doing his job. And by not holding Cali individually accountable for what he did and saying it's just part of the system, we're basically saying everybody is accountable for it. Everyone over there is doing that, and I think that that's a great tragedy. I think that that movies like uh, Taxi Driver uh, sort of affirm that. Be careful of these wacko Vietnam kids coming home. Apocalypse Now is maybe a a great production as a Hollywood film, but it it says as, as little about the Vietnam War, about fighting the Vietnam War, in truth, as say South Pacific says about the Marines fighting in the Pacific mm-hmm. in World War II, uh, these are these are movies. These are stories. Sure. You point out the book because of situations like Me Lai, and I've forgotten how many people were killed in that ditch there. In Perhaps as many as six hundred. Perhaps as many yeah, as six hundred. Just terrible, a, a real atrocity. But you point out in your book that uh, that's that's what we remember, that the GIs did an awful lot of good over there that had forgotten, such, such as. What are the they, kinds of things they did? They did. They, they, they looked out after families and children. They, they, they tried to minimize uh, uh, the, the damage to civilians. Again, there, there are counterexamples of that, and many people know of them, and, and I do affirm them in the book. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so many kids did so much. Over there, trying to trying to reach out and help out, and uh, it uh, if they're all suddenly Lieutenant Kelly, so they came home, and if the Korean War was the forgotten war, Vietnam was never the forgotten war. It's still not forgotten. We may not remember correctly what it was we we did there and and, and what the consequences were, but it's it's surely not the forgotten war. But we really ignored those who came home. I think that was the thing that I heard most. Not that. They had to encounter protesters, but as much, you know, nobody even asked me. There are people, one woman who was an army nurse saying uh, you know, her, her Catholic parish had a potluck for her in upstate New York, and she was delighted to be home, and nobody once asked her about Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Another kid said, that, you know, nobody, somebody said, nice suntan. He said, it's like I just come up, up, up from Florida rather than Vietnam. Another kid who was a Marine that said he just— he thought maybe I can talk to my dad about this because my dad was on Iwo Jima, and he told me you know, 40 years later his dad had never really asked him about what he did there. He said, I'm not sure how much I want to talk about it, but I thought at least my dad would want to talk about it. But we didn't want to talk about it, and and, and most of them didn't want to talk about it, and they moved on, and, and, and they've contributed significantly to our society. I. I think it's terribly important for us all to recognize PTSD and some of the terrible consequences of war that are as old as warfare. Uh, read, read, read Odysseus again. Mm-hmm. It's as old as warfare. But uh, these kids uh, came home and contributed greatly to our society, and uh, yet they, we've never acknowledged what it is that they did. Well, you, you do in your book. Again, I'll make that point. But I also will go to the telephones now and bring in a couple of listeners who okay. want to get into the uh, discussion. We'll start with Harvey calling from Chesterfield. Harvey, thank you for waiting. You're on the air. 
Yeah, thank you for taking my question. Um, there were lots of Vietnam-era protesters who gave life, limb, and treasure uh, in order to save our soldiers' lives and, and bring them home and stop the war. Uh, I'm wondering if, uh, if the author has uh, written a chapter on their contribution to uh, saving soldiers' lives and, and ending that war. I, I did not write a chapter on it. My book, again, is about the Americans who served in Vietnam and that experience. But I do talk about their generation uh, more broadly, including those who protested and those who went to Canada. And uh, I think that I, I, I am very, very kind and generous to them because they stood up for what they thought was the uh, the important political decision, the important geopolitical decision, and the and the important morality about the war, and and I do I think applaud them. I'm I'm, I'm generous to them, but my book is not a study of, of of that. Thanks for the call, Harvey. Let's bring in Don calling from Chesterfield. Don, you're on the air. Thank you very much. I just uh, wanted to share some numbers. A fellow Vietnam vet uh, sent to me a few days ago, and I was quite astounded. I don't know if this gentleman may be able to confirm this, but of the 58,000, if you will, uh, names on the wall, uh, this particular piece of information was bring, breaking it down a little more, and it said 39,000 of those people were 22 years or younger, age-wise. I just, I mean, I was there in 1968, and that was, I think, our most... Uh, we lost more Americans that year, 15,000, I think, in any, any single year. But I, I just never had a clue that that many young people. Let's get a response, uh, Don. Thank you for the call. Jim? Yeah, I don't, I don't know, Don, that I can tell you the exact breakdown of the age of those on the wall. It's a good question. It's something that I maybe maybe should be able to answer. But certainly by, by 68, 69, I think in 69, 42% of those killed in Vietnam were draftees, and, and the draftees were, were pretty much by definition. They, they became older, or younger rather, as the war went on. In 65, 66, uh, the, the average age was probably 24, 25. Mm-hmm. By the late uh, 60s, it was probably in the, in the late teens, mm-hmm. uh, maybe 19 or, or 20. So I, I, I think overall that, 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 that your figures are probably correct. I, I would assume so. I, I have no way of knowing it, but, but it sounds right to me, like it would be right. Yeah. yeah. World War II was a, very much an older generation. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, my father was drafted at age 30 with two, with two children. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, and then, and this, this, this war finally had to, had to mobilize the country. Vietnam depended on the draft, and, and the, the eligible draftees were largely 18, 19, 20-year-olds. Yep. Let's uh, bring in Danny, calling from De Pere. Danny, thank you for waiting. You're on the air. Yeah, uh, I'm a, uh, I was a drafted Vietnam veteran, and uh, the thing that occurs to me after what's going on recently in Afghanistan and Iraq and all that, as much as I, was, I didn't want to be drafted, as much I don't think we could ever bring it back, but... It brought about the protests against Vietnam. There would have been a lot of, pro- lot of protests against Iraq if they'd been drafting people. I think it's too easy for us to go to war with most of us not sacrificing. Now, don't get me wrong, the guys that served three or four tours there are sacrificing like crazy. But I, in, in spite of the unpopularity of it, I think the draft had some value. Yeah, and, and I think I, I quoted my previous book, One, One Father, uh, 
who said it's easier to applaud somebody else's son going off to war than to send your own son off to war. And so I think there is a uh, more of a disposition to say it's great because it is not our own children. Just think of what a small percentage of the families in this country over the last 10 years have had to wait and worry about a knock on the door. And uh, it just, uh, it's a smaller part of our population. It's the first war in American history. It's the first wars in American history where we haven't had a tax to help pay for the war. We've, we've, we've basically done it on debt so these kids can go back home and pay for it. I remember when the Korean War started, uh, there was a sense, okay, we've got to have a tax. The last thing we're going to do is ask these kids to go mm-hmm. over there and fight and then come back and pay for their own war. And uh, we've done that today. And so the, most of us have absolutely no skin in the game. And uh, if we did, maybe there would be more protests. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the knock on the door, and I mentioned to you off the air, uh, the most powerful chapter in your book, as far as I'm concerned, dealt with just that, the notification teams that would go to the families of uh, young men or women who had yeah. been killed in Vietnam. But talk a little bit more about that. I mean, tears were literally rolling down my cheeks, uh, given the way these people understandably would respond to that knock on the door. Yeah, it it, it was... It was the, Remember World War II and in Korea, there would be a telegram mm-hmm. that would be sent out. And uh, we started doing that in, in, in Vietnam. And after the Battle of Yaw Drang, uh, a lot of the, the telegrams went to, to families. Uh, this was in 1965, the Yaw Drang Valley. And a lot of the families were, were down in, in, in Georgia uh, at Fort Benning. And so there were yellow cab drivers delivering telegrams around the base there, including sometimes to the wrong houses. And, uh, and the, the, you know, the, the, there was absolutely nothing personal about it. And so the Army decided, okay, we're going to send out people after this. And, and I did interview people uh, who went out and, and interviewed, and it was uh, very difficult for them. I mean, the, the accounts that they had of being out, including a young Marine Spiller who wrote a, a book about Death Angel, about mm. he working as a recruiter here in Missouri and having to go out to Missouri towns and uh, and uh, uh, tell families that they had lost a son. Uh, I talked to some, one man, who, a Marine who had been at Quezon, one of the difficult battles in Vietnam, and he found himself knocking on doors in New England. And in one house, uh, a father assaulted him and was wrestling on the floor with him, and he didn't want to fight back against this man, but he just found it extremely difficult. Uh, Spiller had somebody pull a gun on him and uh, uh, accuse him of causing his son's death. And uh, they were just, but other times the family would just collapse. Uh, he told the story about one family where the, the mother and father, he, he found them at work to tell them, and uh, they all sat down and wept, and then uh, the the father said, when, when, when may we expect his remains to come home? And he had to tell them uh, he was uh, uh, killed in a major explosion. There were no remains to come home. And the family, the family just uh, sort of rolled on the floor in agony. And, and these things played out again and again and again. But they, you know, most people didn't know it. The Vietnam War was, was unpopular and for good reason. Uh, but uh, it, you know, most of us really didn't look at, at this human cost. And I'm, by m- no means am I suggesting that the human cost of the Vietnamese who were caught in up uh, was, wasn't numerically far greater and emotionally every bit as difficult. And, and I'm not at all dismissive of that. But I just want to tell the story 
of that American generation, those young kids, uh, the children of World War II veterans who, who were told they've got to serve, and they said, okay, I'll go. I just can't imagine what some of those parents and loved ones would be thinking today as they watched as Vietnam has become a tourist destination and we're, we're, we're partners in so many ways now. What a waste. What a total waste. It, it, it is. I've, I've made since in writing this book, I made <clears throat> several trips to Vietnam and I got away from the casinos and the resorts and the golf courses on the coast and got into the highlands and up out on the Mekong Delta, and, and you have to be there to realize how people would say 50 years ago it was scary. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I I went up to i and I climbed Hamburger Hill uh, because I just wanted to be at the top where so many kids were killed in May of 1969. Well, as I said at the beginning of this interview, Jim Wright, uh, it, it's very, very painful but very necessary to read histories like this and hope that it keeps us from repeating that kind of history. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Don. It's been my pleasure, and and, and happy Veterans Day to all of the veterans out there. Uh, Absolutely. His book is entitled uh, uh, Enduring Vietnam, An American Generation and Its War. Jim will be appearing at the Missouri History Museum tonight at 7 o'clock.